G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. We have been drifting much like a Fast and Furious film, through the primeval history. And now we are up to our navels in Genesis 4 and the story of Cain and Abel. And it's uh, been quite a journey thus far, Tim. I'm not sure we'll read these Bible stories the same way ever again. Yeah, that's the idea, mate. We're trying to read these stories the way that they would be understood by the author, and that requires adopting a mature approach. Can't just keep reading the Bible the same way we did when we were six years old and going to Sunday school. There's nothing to be gained by continually glossing over things that don't make sense to us, especially when there are tools available to us to help us to understand and to learn and grow from that understanding. Yeah, that's true. But I think for a, a lot of people, it's just hard to make sense of some of that stuff, you know, and we need someone to connect the dots and maybe help us choose the right, uh, right crayon, so to speak, to colour in the big picture that's forming. Yeah, well, hopefully we can do that for our listeners. I've had my crayons out, so I hope you're ready because we're going to open the Bible and read from Genesis chapter 4, verses 13 to 15. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. You have to admit, you know, Genesis 4 is full of enough mysteries to fill a whole season of Scooby-Doo. And uh, people have just been speculating about the mark of Cain for thousands of years. That kind of thing shows up all over the time, you know, pop culture, I guess, wondering what the mark of Cain is. And I guess no one will ever know for sure. Oh, I reckon we'll have a good idea by the end of this episode. Whoa, you can't be serious. You're telling me that you found something that explains what the mark of Cain is? How can you do that? It's not even written in the Bible. Well, I reckon it is, and I'm going to show you. But we've got a bit of ground to cover before we get that far. All right, uh, there's some other stuff you want to talk about first? Yeah, we're going to cover the ground. Ground covering. Oh, wait a minute. This is a joke, isn't it? You're waiting for me to ask, what kind of ground are we going to cover? And then you're going to say, the ground is the ground. And I'm going to say, what do you mean the ground is the ground? And then you'll explain that it's a metaphor. And then I'm going to look like I didn't get the joke. But that's not going to work because this time I do. So there. Well, actually, I was going to say that the ground we're going to cover is the earth. Ah, semantics. You say tomato, I say potato. Well, we'll see. But before all that, I want to talk about what Cain is saying here. Cain seems to think that God is being pretty harsh. See, it begins with Cain saying quite emphatically that he can't handle this. We know that he's been quite emphatic because the construction in Hebrew is saying Cain said. We have this repetition of saying. There are lots of other examples of this emphatic grammatical structure. For example, in the day that you eat of it, dying you shall die, which is usually translated as you shall surely die. And you should recognise that one from Genesis 2. This is the same kind of situation. So there's a bit of passion in Cain's speech here. Well, that wouldn't be like Cain, would it? Oh, driven by passions, motivated by desire for self-preservation? No, of course not. That's exactly what Cain's all about. If Abel is the spirit, then Cain is definitely the flesh. It's all about his passion and saving his own skin. Cain is a man without the spirit of God. He's acting like an animal, only interested in what benefits himself. And right now, that means self-pity is going to be the tool he'll use to try and get what he wants. Now, depending on what translation you're reading, you might come away with the impression that it's either the punishment that Cain is protesting against 
or perhaps the gravity of his own sin. Some translations will use a word like iniquity. The Hebrew term avon is a complex one because it doesn't just mean twistedness or perversion as its original root implies, it also entails the consequence of that, including natural outcomes and imposed punishments. So there's a lot going on here beyond just the idea that Cain feels bad about having done something wrong. This term encompasses not just the crime, but the consequences and punishment as well as the whole situation, which could be described as twisted and messed up. And this has gone way beyond just Cain by himself now. By his own acknowledgement, this situation has become bigger than he can lift on his own. And we're going to see as we progress through this text that it doesn't apply only to Cain as an individual. So he won't carry this burden by himself, but we'll get to that when we come to it in the text. Cain acknowledges that he's being exiled or literally cursed away from the ground. In fact, in Cain's words, he is driven away. That's an interesting one because the Hebrew behind that word is the root from which we get the name of one of the giant clans, and specifically the only one that was not utterly destroyed at the conquest of Canaan, but was driven out. They were the Girgashites. So it's interesting that there's a little bit of a connection here between the need to restore sacred space and deal with evil while still extending some degree of mercy. But that's a little bit off topic, so we need to get back to our text. It's so important that we read this correctly and don't substitute the ground for the earth in this text because we're going to need to understand the difference between the ground and the earth in due course. All right, so let me see if I've got this straight. The ground represents the civilised world of people and society, and that is expressed in the Hebrew word Adamah. But when we see the word earth in our English translation, that is based on the Hebrew Eretz, which is talking more about geography rather than people. That's why I talk about the country for the, or, or the region instead of the civilization. So when we see earth in the Bible, we should be thinking more like the way children's stories use the word land. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that's exactly right. You got that spot on. When you read a fairy tale about the bravest knight in the land, you don't make the assumption that we're talking about the bravest knight in the world, like there's nobody on the whole planet who's braver than this hero. Nobody's thinking about planets or even the entire world. Eretz should be translated as land most of the time. So Keynes realised that the people who gave him his power will no longer support him and have rejected him as king, leaving him with no option but exile and an existence devoid of meaning and direction. And this is why he describes himself in the same terms that God used as a fugitive and a vagabond. On the one hand, he's on the run because he fears the people who turned against him. And on the other hand, he's got no particular place to go. Cain is very much like his mother, as we see when we read his interpretation of God's words. God told the man in the Garden of Eden not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But when the woman gives her understanding of that commandment to the serpent, she adds the prohibition against touching it, which was never included in the original statement. Here we see Cain doing the same thing. God tells Cain that he'll be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain hears those words loud and clear, but he also interprets this as his exile from the presence of God. That isn't what God said. And for those of you who were paying attention toward the end of last season on the podcast, you'll know that God did not exile the man and the woman from his presence, but merely from the sacred space that they used to have shared access to. Without the benefit of a psychology degree, it's kind of hard for me to say whether Cain is projecting his fears or just expressing his pessimistic outlook here when he talks about being hidden from the face of God. But the passive sense of being hidden implies that Cain feels like this is something that is going to happen to him rather than something he is going to actively pursue. 
Kane might be pushing the blame for this back on God here because it doesn't sound like he's really taken ownership of what he's done or the consequences arising from it. And I think it's that kind of attitude toward God that's going to characterise Kane's future in terms of this inability to find meaning and purpose while he tries desperately to preserve his life. As long as he fails to come to terms with his responsibility toward his fellow man and the word of God, he's going to be lost. He's going to be very much like the Satan in the book of Job, who spends his time wandering back and forth, going up and down over the land, a figure of chaos and futility. In this sense, Cain has become a true son of the evil one, rather than the seed of the woman that he was meant to be. So as I said earlier, Cain's primary focus seems to be the preservation of his life, and he's become fearful that he'll be recognised as a murderer and killed by anyone who finds him. One indication that we have of the late authorship of this story is the cultural background established by the Torah, which seems apparent, especially at this point in the narrative. The idea that a family member of a deceased relative could act as the avenger of blood and take the life of someone guilty of killing their relative comes straight from Scripture. That's from the book of Numbers, chapter 35. Won't read it now, but the thing is that it only applies to accidental manslaughter, not deliberate murder. So the idea that Cain seems to think he should somehow escape vengeance shows that he really doesn't think he's actually guilty of murder. He's become quite delusional. He's more afraid that somebody will think that he's guilty of accidental manslaughter and he will have nowhere to go because there are no cities of refuge. And that's why he says, whoever finds me will kill me. Now there's a little trick going on in the text there. But I'm going to have to show you something else before it makes any sense. So we'll come back to that saying of Cain in a moment, because I know that you're all itching to get to the exciting part of this passage. You bet I am. I sure am itchy. Uh, I'm so excited. I've forgotten, actually. What is it again? We're going to talk about the mark of Cain. Ah, uh, that's right. Yes, yes. That does sound exciting. Please scratch this itch. Okay. So I guess there's a few things we should say about the mark of Cain before we get into exactly what it is. Let's talk about what it isn't. Firstly, I think we've had enough coverage of the Serpent Sea Doctrine over the first few weeks of this season of the show, so that none of you who have been following us so far will be falling for that idea, which means that I don't have to explain that Cain was not transformed into some kind of reptilian or serpent-like creature, so I won't be doing that. Another common idea is that God made Cain's skin turn black. Firstly, I'm just going to come out and say that is straight up racist. It's actually a long-standing belief coming out of Western Europe during the colonial era, this is people picking up the Bible, reading the Dominion Mandate in Genesis 1, and deciding that means they need to go and conquer the world. And they go into these other countries of the world that are not mentioned in the Bible and find black people living there. What do they do with that? According to their understanding of Scripture, there shouldn't be any other people outside of the 70 nations mentioned in Genesis 11. We're going to have some fun when we get to that chapter. So the rationale is that if there are people outside of the Bible lands and they're black, then we have to find some black people who disappear off the pages of Scripture. So the solution is Cain, because after Genesis 4, you don't hear from him again, and he's got this mark, which obviously means that God painted him black, right? Obviously, that's just absolute garbage. Manufactured by people who want to use the Bible to suit their prejudices and political desires, and it also has the unwanted effect of creating a bunch of stupid overreactions to that kind of dogma, like the black Hebrew-Israelite movement. I talked about that before as well, so I'm not going there either. The Mark of Cain has had some pretty interesting interpretations from older cultures as well, right? Like back in medieval days, people used to think that the Mark of Cain was some kind of physical disorder that made you look weird when you walked. And that came from the way that the rabbis interpreted the phrase a fugitive and a vagabond, some kind of uncoordinated staggering or, or limping like that uh, 
Monty Python sketch with John Cleese. Oh, the, the Ministry of Silly Walks. Oh, that's the one, classic. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. Other right, interpretations included some kind of identifying <laughs> mark on Kane's forehead. That's uh, yes. probably better yeah, than the alternative, which was a huge horn uh, growing probably. out of his head. Uh, there is a passage in Ezekiel that talks about people being marked on the forehead with the Hebrew letter Tav, which looks a bit like an X. Naturally, all the Christians jumped on that one and went, oh, look, it's the cross of Christ. But actually, the cross of Christ looks more like the letter T, doesn't it? Yeah, that doesn't really make any sense. So, yeah, as I was saying, there's all kinds of things that the mark of Cain is definitely not. But that's not what our listeners are interested in. Speaking of what the mark of Cain is not, most people would be under the assumption that the mark of Cain is not specified in the text of Genesis 4. I reckon it would be a fair bit to say that most of us have heard people say that the Bible doesn't tell us what the mark of Cain actually is. But I would beg to differ. And for those listeners who have been following the show for some time now, you should know that I'm not going to come out with something controversial without some kind of academic material to back it up, usually. Yeah, I was going to say, are you sure about that? Yeah, well, usually. So, so I've got a paper here that I'm going to be referencing. Uh, this is by Walter Mobley. Uh, this was written in 2007, and it's called The Mark of Cain Revealed at Last? Question mark. Published by Cambridge University Press in the Harvard Theological Review, number 100, and pages 11 to 28. You can find this online. Mobley suggests that the of in Mark of Cain should be understood more like for, as in Mark for Cain. I think it's a good idea because it removes the focus from the possibility that Cain was somehow tattooed or disfigured or maimed with some kind of physical distinction. It also underscores the fact that this is an act of grace on the part of God toward Cain. This is something that God is doing for him. Mobley also points out that there's some unusual wording in the verse. When God speaks to Cain, he says, Not so. Whoever kills Cain shall suffer sevenfold vengeance. And you've got to think about it. God is talking to Cain. So why does God speak to Cain in the third person? Why does God say, whoever kills Cain, instead of, Whoever kills you. That does seem kind of unusual. It's also weird that God keeps referencing these metal bands. I'm not sure that many people know about an 80s metal band from Adelaide called The Mark of Cain. Just seems kind of weird that God would throw that reference in there. I'm sure uh, people would be more familiar with Avenged Sevenfold. They've had a, a much bigger career over the last 20 years. Sorry, Mark of Cain. Yeah, probably. But I reckon the guys from The Mark of Cain would beat up Avenged Sevenfold for their lunch money. Punks. Anyway. The way the text is written, it looks more like God is saying something that he expects other people to say about Cain. It's like God is coining a phrase that will become a popular expression among other people. And in fact, that's true because later on in the chapter, we're going to see Lamech saying the same thing. I'm just going to quote Mobley here because I think he sums it up nicely. Here's the quote. When one takes these two factors together, that the text implies a non-corporeal mark to protect Cain from being killed, and that Yahweh is introducing a general saying about the perilous outcome of killing Cain, then my thesis about the nature of the mark of Cain should, I hope, become apparent. It is the saying in the text, whoever kills Cain will suffer sevenfold vengeance. That is itself the non-corporeal sign, the warning, which serves to prevent Cain from being killed. That's the end of the quote. Mobley goes on to say that this isn't a case of divine retribution either. This is just a stated fact. Cain has a tendency to overreact in situations where he feels threatened. It doesn't matter if the threat is violence or famine. If it's fight or flight, Cain fights. So God is effectively saying, 
that the word will spread about Cain that he is not to be messed with because whatever gets done to him is going to be returned upon the aggressor and in a much more severe fashion. Hmm, but hang on a minute. How is Cain going to get somebody back if they murder him? It's a bit hard to seek revenge if you're dead. Yeah, good point. This is where we need to pay attention to plurality in the text in some unexpected places. Did you notice that it has the word whoever? Or if you're reading the old King James Version or something like that, it'll say whosoever. That's not a singular form. There are possibly multiple people involved there. It gets interesting when you realise that multiple people are going to do multiple killings of Cain. But if Cain is just one guy, then that doesn't work. However, if the name of Cain is being used as representative of a group of people, that changes everything. Hmm. Can you do that? Sure you can. We do it all the time in the Bible. Think about Israel, for example, or Esau. More often than not, those names are being used to refer to large groups of people connected to that particular ancestor. So Cain could be somebody like that. All his ancestors could be the people of Cain. The name of his tribe would be Cain. That tribe would have a fearsome reputation for vengeance. And we're going to see that as we continue studying this chapter. So what we're learning here is that the Marky Cain is simply an expression that would have been in common use regarding Cain's reputation for vengeance, kind of like a, a cautionary tale. There's one of those about Nimrod as well, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. We have that repetition of the phrase, Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. That's exactly the same kind of thing, except that in the case of Cain, this is something that God has initiated as a way of protecting Cain from suffering the judgment of men. Hang on a minute, though. It says that God put a mark on Cain. So how can we say that a mark or a sign could be something that you say, like an expression or some kind of video? Wouldn't that have to be some kind of visual reminder? Not necessarily. When we look at the biblical usage of the word translated here as mark, here's how it gets used elsewhere. A sign, a signal, a distinguishing mark, a banner, a remembrance a miraculous sign, an omen, a warning, a token, ensign, standard, miracle, or proof. There's quite a variety of different forms here, and some of them are not physical in nature by any means, but they all have one thing in common. The whole point of any kind of sign or mark is to convey meaning. If the meaning is understood, then the sign or mark, whatever it is, could be anything. And that's exactly the function of communication language. It's all about conveying meaning. Whether you do it with a picture, or you do it with a monument, or you do it in writing, or you do it with a memorable phrase, the point is that it means something to the recipient that will generate the desired effect. And we know what the desired effect is because it's stated very clearly in the text. The desired outcome is that anybody who might have thought of killing Cain would refrain from doing so. But don't you think that's a bit... Unethical? I mean, it sounds like God is almost giving Cain some kind of permission to be violent or like he condones it or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, th I think I see what you mean, but I'm not sure that there's anything necessitating the idea that this is any kind of divine endorsement of Cain's actions. Let's not forget this is right in the middle of Cain receiving punishment for doing that. I, I think we're better off seeing this as a statement of fact with regard to the nature of Cain and as a warning to others that they should leave any kind of retribution or judgment up to God. Let's put it like this. If I say to you, don't pat the dog because he bites, that's not me saying it's okay for the dog to bite you. That's me saying, if you know what's good for you, you'll stay away from the dog. It's a warning. It's not an endorsement. Cain's going to get what's coming to him, but he doesn't need to get it from everybody else. 
Yeah, that, that explains it pretty well. But what about the number seven then? Isn't that like a divine number or something? Yeah, it's a good pickup. Uh, seven is a divine number, but it's not just God's number. In the ancient world, the number seven carried notions of divinity across various cultures and civilizations and was used in the context of a wide variety of divine beings. So the use of the number seven here doesn't mean that this is divine retribution protecting Cain. It's not like God is backing Cain up and dishing out beatings to anyone who picked on Cain. So if this isn't about God, then why is the number seven being associated with Cain? I think there are a couple of reasons. The first one's pretty straightforward. I think it's just a case of intensification. If you want to provide an effective deterrent, then you need to show that the punishment is going to be many times worse than the offence. But the other reason has more to do with that divine aspect that we were just talking about, and specifically it connects back to the whole reason we're talking about a murder in the first place. The murder of Abel was a ritual killing designed as a human sacrifice motivated by the humiliation that had angered Cain in the first place. Cain had been merely insulted, but his response was to kill a man in the name of a god. It was literally divine retribution at the hands of a man, and that is the key here. I think that's why the number seven is used specifically, and I think we're going to see a development of that theme when we get to talking about Lamech in a future episode. And speaking of future episodes, stick around, because next week we're going to attempt to discover the mysterious land of Nod, and I'm sure there will be a lot of like jokes about sleeping and nodding your head and agreeing and such. Uh, but first, we've got some uh, Q&A. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers.outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your so this question comes to us from the uh, Divine Council Worldview Discussion Group on Facebook. Aaron asked, can someone help me understand if the 70 angels that inherited the nations at the Tower of Babel were already fallen, or if they fell away at a later point? I'm almost through the Unseen Realm book, and I was under the impression that God gave over the nations to these demons until I listened to an episode of the Lord of Spirits podcast and heard something really interesting that might have indicated that they were truly God's angels hence called sons of God. They supposedly must have fell away at a later point, although the Bible is silent on this part. Is my understanding correct, or am I missing something? Firstly, it sounds like you're into some pretty good material, Aaron, and I definitely recommend Dr. Heiser's book, The Unseen Realm, as well as the Lord of Spirits podcast. However, uh, overexposure to both of them may result in you talking to dead people. Just kidding, just kidding. But seriously, they are great resources, and like everything else you read, you are going to have to eat the meat and spit out the bones occasionally. I think you made a really good point about the fact that there's no record in the scriptures of the supposed falling away of the sons of God who were put in charge of the nations. I think we've got to take that seriously. A lot of commentators on this treat that fact very casually and just act like something must have happened even though we're not told because otherwise their line of thinking doesn't add up. The main argument that I see in favour of God placing his loyal sons of God in charge of the nations relies on this idea that God would only put good people in charge of something. And I just want to wave my hand generally in the air and snort at that because I don't see evidence that God has ever placed morally perfect beings in charge of anything now, with the exception of God's own perfect nature as our sovereign creator. In fact, it's more a case of God gives you bad leadership as a judgment against you. Seriously, though, if God had to wait for someone who's good enough for the job, he'd end up doing everything himself. That's just not how God works. 
God takes delight in the participation of his creations in the work that he's doing. And in his grace and mercy, he bears with the failings of the weak. That's the lesson we learned in the Garden of Eden. It's the goodness of God, in contrast to all others, that shows him as the only perfect being that we should strive to emulate. And it doesn't diminish God by any means to suggest that he would place morally imperfect beings in charge of stuff, because all of this draws attention to God's own perfect righteousness in his own authority to decide what is fit for purpose and by what standard all things are to be judged. And judgment, I believe, is the critical point here because we have a tendency to think of being put in charge of something as a kind of reward for good conduct, like getting a promotion in your job or something. But I would suggest that God, who alone is the judge of all things, is proved righteous by allowing all his creatures to be put to the test, thus proving that God's judgments are indeed righteous. And that means giving everyone the opportunity to let their true colours show, whether for good or for bad. And so when we apply this line of thinking to the event at the Tower of Babel, we find that God is pronouncing judgment on the sons of men by giving them over to the gods that they desire to become like. And he is also pronouncing judgment on those gods who presumed to be better masters over the sons of men than God himself. That makes sense. But when those fallen angels all chained up? Yeah, there are going to be a lot of people listening to this and realising that I am affirming that I believe it was the fallen sons of God who were placed over the nations by the Most High and objecting to that because when you read Jude and Peter in the New Testament, they tell us that those rebellious sons of God were confined to Tartarus and bound in everlasting chains of darkness so they couldn't possibly be ruling the nations of the world. Yeah, and that's what I thought. And others might argue that even if that were the case, the fact is that now Jesus has come and declared his victory to those imprisoned spirits, and he told the disciples that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him, so they don't rule the nations anymore. That's what I thought. I hear that quite a lot. So my question for those people is this. Why does the entire Hebrew Bible presume that the gods do in fact preside over the nations wickedly the whole time? And why does the Apostle Paul continue to refer to principalities and powers in heavenly places if he knows, and he should know, that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I, th uh, yeah, hang on, that's uh, a good point. It seems obvious to me that the constant refrain of biblical authors concerning the problem of evil and why bad things happen to good people and the issue of unjust rulers over the oppressed is a pretty clear indication that aside from God alone, there is no righteous judge over any people anywhere in the world. So how are we supposed to understand this idea of these rebellious sons of God being locked away and chained up if it is so clearly evident that they are still at work in our world today? Again, for people who want to avoid the conclusions we're coming to here, they have to invent things that are not in the text, like separate categories between divine beings, some of which are good and some of which are not good. And they have to do that so they can say that God just puts the good ones in charge and the bad ones are getting what they deserve. That is not what we see in Scripture. It's nothing more than an invention to try and make people feel good about their own understanding of how God works. God doesn't need to put good people in charge in order to show himself good. Now, I was talking about this the other day in an online discussion group somewhere. It may have been the same group in which Aaron has asked this question, but on a different thread somewhere. And the question at hand was how these fallen angels were rebellious sons of God. And you'll notice that I never call them demons because the word demon does not mean an angel who is morally bad. How could it be possible that they're active in the world despite this language of imprisonment and chains and all that kind of thing? And my response to that is this. 
What makes you think that a fallen angel or a son of God, whether good or bad, could possibly be restrained by some kind of metal chains or shackles? I mean, seriously, is there is there any kind of metal or any other material for that matter that a divine being can't handle? Do we seriously think that even though an angel who is ranked lower than the sons of God can go out on the battlefield and slaughter 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in a single night, which we read about in 2 Kings 19, verse 35, Isaiah 37, verse 36. Do we think he can't take care of a couple of iron shackles attached to his wrists? I hope you can see the absurdity of this line of thinking. But seriously, let's have a look at the description of these chains that everybody appeals to. What are they made of? On the one hand, they're described as chains of darkness. That's 2 Peter 2, 4. And elsewhere, they are referred to as everlasting chains. That's Jude 6. But there's nothing to suggest any kind of physicality to these chains at all, which is appropriate given that they are intended to restrain divine beings, not embodied humans. And what about the location of the imprisonment? Again, that's 2 Peter 2.4. Where is Tartarus? Can you find it on a map? Could you dig a hole deep enough to go there? Can you give me the GPS coordinates so we can find a way to go there? You can't do any of those things because this isn't a place in physical space and time. We're talking about the divine realm. We haven't got physical restraints and we haven't got physical embodiment of these beings and we haven't got a physical location in which they can be found. So why do we keep insisting in this scientific worldview concerned primarily with the physical and observable? that we can say anything with certainty about what these divine beings can or cannot do. It seems to have escaped the attention of many commentators that darkness is often spoken of in the ancient world as a limitation of power and as an expression of the lack of divine glory, which I think can be roughly equated. We often hear discussion around the one who restrains the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verse 3 to 7, namely the Holy Spirit as the restrainer. And that should be ringing some bells for people who haven't thought about this before. But seriously, why wouldn't the Holy Spirit be the restrainer of these rebellious sons of God? Certainly the Holy Spirit is eternal. So if you want to talk about everlasting chains, I think that makes a good analogy. And as I say, if you consider the concept of darkness as the restraint of former glory, then we see the work of the Holy Spirit as setting limits to what these divine beings can do. Then all that's left to do is acknowledge that this place of darkness in which they are restrained doesn't have latitude and longitude. So there is nothing to prevent these rebellious sons of God from being anywhere in particular. And I mentioned this in my book, which of course deals with this in much greater detail, but when you consider the first century context of the writings of Peter and Jude, one thing that becomes obvious in reading Paul's letters is this idea that being imprisoned or chained to a restraining agent does not mean that you can't go about from place to place. Paul himself spent years chained to a Roman guard. This is a concept of limited agency, not the absence of any kind of power to do anything or go anywhere. And that just leaves us then with one more issue, which is the defeat of these powers by Jesus Christ. Jesus says all authority in heaven and earth belongs to him. Paul seems to suggest that we still have real and powerful divine enemies over geographical areas. And the simple way to reconcile those two views is to understand that while Jesus has delegitimized the rule of these principalities and powers in heavenly places, they still exist and they're still at work in the world. They now temporarily operate outside of the express will of God. And as long as the faithful people of God are not pushing them back, they will continue to take advantage. And since the faithful people of God now function as the body of Christ in the world, 
That means that we have got a significant role to play in continuing to push back the darkness and reclaim the dominion of the world that God intended for us. The first part of that is coming to a correct understanding of these issues so we can address that situation appropriately and with wisdom. So I just want to say thanks to Aaron for that question because it's a really important one and I'm glad we had the opportunity to talk about it. As I say, there's a lot more about this in my book, Answers to Giant Questions. Hopefully this has been a helpful contribution to that discussion. Anyway, that's all we have time for. And as usual, we will continue the conversation next week when we get back into Genesis 4 and answer more of your giant questions. Sounds good. We'll see you then. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions, by DJ Stephen on Amazon, paperback, and Google Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com, giantanswers.com, Read the blog and have us on socials. Don't forget to subscribe to the Friends Club Show. Send us all your questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answered. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe. God bless. Yeah, sure. I've uh, hijacked the television and programmed it to turn on in time for all their favourite shows, and they don't know how <laughs> they did that, so they can't undo it. So, about 30 times every night, our TV just spontaneously turns on to some kids' program. Really? Mm. Oh. It's like being in a haunted house. Like there's a poltergeist in the TV, just like cranks it up every so often. You know, it's all quiet and the TV just starts blurring. Oh, trust me, I thank God every day that my seed remains unscattered. It do be like that though. Um, have you tried giggling? I'm too lazy for that. I understand. Easier to just get up and turn the TV off 30 times every night. Sure, keep me abreast like an Amazonian archer. Yes. Well, I don't know if that's, you know, the myth is that they cut off one breast mm. for easier archery. <laughs>